welcome to The Catch. I'm Matt Hansen, freelance editor with FindBet.com. Joined today again by Brad Mealy, freelance contributor with FindBet.com and my personal fitness consigliere. We are extremely happy to be here for the second episode of this series where we will discuss everything going on in the world of sports that we can fit into 60 minutes. Throughout this series, we will cover a range of topics, including sports betting and fantasy, along with keeping up with current events and trade rumors and so much more. But don't forget to follow us on Twitter at find underscore bet and on Instagram at find bet, just one word. And all of our newest content can be found on our website at www.findbet.com. Brad, uh, we're going to kick the show off with football, but we are going to touch on some basketball and baseball later on in the show. But I didn't watch 11 straight hours of football on Sunday to not kick the show off uh, talking about the NFL. Uh, The first week of the NFL season is behind us, and what a great week of football that it was. Um, Lots to talk about, including some updates on fantasy and what players are rising and falling. Um, But let's start off the show with the bad news and go over some of the notable injuries from week one, starting with Michael Thomas, who news has come out that the Saints expect him to miss week two against the Raiders and possibly more time beyond that. Now, in regards to fantasy, Brad, does this boost the value of Alvin Kamara, Latavius Murray in the running game, or do you see it helping the receivers that are going to be filling in for Thomas while he's out and maybe some of the tight ends as well? Um, let's get your take on that to start off the show. I, yeah, I think that obviously losing Thomas is a big deal. Um, Drew Brees, I think, especially uh, in that uh, Sunday afternoon game against the Buccaneers, he looked looked a little rusty on some things. He wasn't the Drew Brees that was lighting it up for three or 400 yards like we see in the past. And I think losing Thomas early in that game didn't help that. But at this point, Kamara already had both of Drew Brees' touchdowns last week. He had a uh, passing touchdown early in the game, and then he had a rushing touchdown as well. So uh, the really the Saints' defense is what carried them last week. But I think with Thomas out, you're going to see them use Kamara and Murray a little bit more, Latavius Murray. Um, I also think that Emmanuel Sanders is definitely gets a boost this week as the number two. He was another uh, wide receiver that got one of Brees' touchdowns last week. So um, – Jared Cook had a really good week, too. I wasn't that high on him coming into the year because he went to New Orleans last year. And really, for as much as Drew Brees had used Jimmy Graham in the past and his tight ends in the past, he really wasn't used much. No, last year it seemed like he was mostly touchdown dependent. Exactly. He wasn't somebody that was going to be a top five or even a top ten starting tight end in your lineup. So with Thomas being out last week, he actually led the Saints in receiving in 80 yards. So um, he's somebody that is definitely gets a boost as well, just with because of maybe being in a second year with Breeze and having a little bit more chemistry. But um, there are plenty of offensive weapons to go around on the Saints. Obviously, losing Michael Thomas is a big deal. Um, and him, I know earlier in the week, they said that he was going to try to play through a high ankle sprain. That just doesn't happen, especially in today's NFL. So it's not very surprising that he's going to be missing week two and probably even a couple of weeks beyond that to start the year. 
Yeah, unfortunately, that high ankle sprain traditionally has been a nagging injury that's going to stick with players. And you're talking about somebody at a skill position and that's as talented as Michael Thomas, but relies on that burst and being able to um, take a quick step and change of direction. Um, it's definitely going to be an injury that, that's going to hamper him throughout the season. And unfortunately for the Saints, I see him probably being out for at least three weeks. Um, I, I see them being cautious with him. Um, and not risking his health for later in the season because with or without him, that team is still talented enough to, um, you know, get some wins. They showed it last year when Drew Brees went out and Teddy Bridgewater was filling in. Um, they are a team that is battle tested and they're going to be prepared for these types of injuries throughout the season. Um, for fantasy owners, obviously it's not an ideal situation considering you're likely spending a first round, maybe a second round pick, but probably a first round pick on Michael Thomas this year, expecting him to be your breadwinner. Uh, unfortunately, you're going to have to start planning for him to be out for a couple of weeks. Um, but throughout this show, we'll discuss some options. Hopefully that will be uh, ideas for you to replace him and, and get some wins early in the season. Now, moving on to a couple other uh, players that were injured in week one. Um, Le'Veon Bell is expected to miss a, a couple of weeks for the New York Jets. Um, Blake Jarwin, the Dallas Cowboys tight end, is unfortunately going to miss the entire season. Um, for the Browns, David Njoku is expected to miss at least three weeks after being placed on IR um, under the, the new rules in 2020. When placed on IR, it's a minimum of three games. So. Um, we'll see how long Njoku is going to be out after getting a touchdown in week one. Um, also for the Browns, Jarvis Landry is questionable for Thursday night against Cincinnati. Um, Brad, do you have any others that you wanted to touch on? Yeah, I think that losing Blake Jarwin from Dallas is going to be big. I was pretty high on him coming into the year with the amount of targets that he was going to get. And even his replacement that came in last week, um, Dalton Schultz is the backup tight end for them. He really didn't impress, and maybe a week of practice will help with that. But um, he really wasn't involved as much as a tight end usually is um, in that Dallas offense. Uh, and Joku's going to be a big loss. I thought he showed some really good um, chemistry with Mayfield right off the bat, and he even got a touchdown there early in the game against the Ravens last week um, before he went out. Um, so, yeah, that is going to be a big one. But it also opens up the door for Harrison Bryant to come in, the Browns rookie tight end, to be able to show. And he's drawn, drawn rave reviews from training camp and, and practices that the media has seen uh, through the summer here. So it may be a chance for him to uh, shine as well. Yeah, I was really high on Blake Jarwin as well, you know, expecting him to come and fill into um, a lot of those targets um, that Jason Witten was leaving behind from last season. And and even in short opportunity and short work last season, Jarwin showed the ability to succeed with Dak Prescott. Um, so that's a huge blow um, uh, and just unfortunate for a young player. You never like to see any players go down, but especially uh, someone in that type of a situation where they're walking into a starting role um, on, on the Dallas Cowboys and to get hurt week one and, and know that you're, you've lost your, your entire season. That's tough. So our hearts and our thoughts and prayers go out to Blake Jarwin uh, to return safely and healthy next season to uh, resume his responsibilities as the primary tight end there. Um, another player I wanted to touch on real quick, just for fantasy players and managers to be aware of, uh, Chris Godwin is currently in concussion protocol. 
and his status should be monitored for week two. Um, indications are that he will likely play, but when you're talking about something like a concussion at this point, um, it's something that you definitely want to keep an eye on. So he might be a game time decision, um, not only for the Bucks, but for your fantasy teams. And Brad, the last injury that I at least wanted to touch on is possibly the biggest one that's going to impact fantasy football uh, moving forward through the rest of the season. Um, and that is going to be for the Colts, Marlon Mack, who is um, out for the year. Um, and the Colts appear to have a couple of backs that uh, can fill the role and just in different ways. Uh, Brad, I know that you have a lot of uh, stock in Jonathan Taylor. So why don't you take this one? Yeah, so Marlon Mack, obviously he tore his Achilles uh, in the first game of the year against Jacksonville this past week. Um, and Jonathan Taylor came in uh, and looks to take over as the primary uh, uh, breadwinner there in uh, Indy. And actually, um, their pass catching tight end, Hines, he's going to be in as well. He's already a big part of their um, a big part of their offensive game plan to begin with, which he's going to be the, the primary pass catching uh, back out of the backfield for Phillip Rivers. Um, but Taylor saw 35% of the snaps there in week one with Hines getting 53% um, before, you know, Mac getting the rest of that before he was injured. Um, this week I look for it to probably be about 60% Taylor with 40% Hines. And it's just going to be based on, on game script. If the Colts get behind again this week, they're going to be passing the ball more. And Taylor is going to get a little bit less – uh, run just because of that, because of Hines' ability to be an excellent pass catcher out of the backfield. So, but already, I mean, you can't predict injuries in fantasy, which is the infuriating part, I guess, from fantasy football. You'd like to have your your players be healthy all year long, all year long, but that doesn't necessarily mean that happens. But owners who took a chance on Taylor, I thought Taylor was being way overdrafted. He was going in the fifth and sixth round in some drafts that I was in. Um, for a guy that was going to be part-time right out of the gate, you know, eventually he was going to get to this point, I think, as the year went on. But now, you know, he's rewarding owners that took a chance on him. And he's got legitimate running back one potential every week. Um, but he's going to be a solid running back, too, probably for mostly for the rest of the year just because of that. His, his floor is a running back, too, probably for the rest of the year. I agree. And one thing that you saw from the Los Angeles Chargers and the Cincinnati Bengals game was the difference in – the effectiveness of the running backs for the Chargers with Tyrod Taylor at quarterback um, as opposed to Phillip Rivers. And I am not one that likes to um, talk badly on Tyrod Taylor. I think he's a fantastic person and he's a good football player. Um, but he's also somebody that we've seen go through both of our um, favorite teams and um, he just was unsuccessful as their starting quarterback. Now, Austin Eckler was a highly touted running back coming into the season for fantasy. Um, didn't exactly light the world on fire. Um, and I think a lot of that you can kind of revolve back to, you know, the different quarterback in place being Tyrod Taylor. Um, on the flip side of that, you can look at Indianapolis and with Phillip Rivers, he was dialing up passes all over the field, uh, spreading it out. Um, he's always been great at that. It's something that uh, is making me really excited for Paris Campbell this year, who's largely going to be working out of the slot in Indianapolis, um, being the beneficiary of, of Rivers at quarterback. Um, but that's just something to keep an eye on if you're an Austin Eckler owner. Me personally, um, I'm trying to sell right now uh, just based on that first week's performance. Yeah, I, just Tyra Taylor doesn't exude confidence in the passing game, so that's only going to hurt Eckler down the line. I mean, they had 144 yards rushing between the two of them. Um, Joshua, Joshua Kelly, the rookie, he found the end zone. He had 60 yards, and Eckler had 84. But it was on 19 carries. 
Um, teams are going to stack that box because they know that Tyrod isn't going to be somebody that's going to stretch the field. He's not one who's going to hit those intermediate routes that open up the running game and kind of clear some of those guys out of the boxes. So I agree. As, as high as I was on Eckler this year, the, especially going against a Bengals defense that's not elite by any means, they barely can put up any production to be uh, relevant. Yeah, that's the scary thing for me, Brad, is, you know, if it was against uh, an elite defense or even just a defense that you could kind of say, you know, they're a tough defense to play on a week-to-week basis. But well, considering they're opening up uh, against a, a rookie quarterback on the other side and a defense that has uh, quite a few holes to fill, it's definitely worrisome for that Los Angeles Chargers uh offense moving forward. Um, but one thing that you mentioned about Marlon Mack and the Indianapolis backfield was the snap count percentage for the running backs. And one thing that we talked about in the first episode, uh, as well as some NFL coverage uh, prior, fantasy coverage prior to the uh, fantasy season uh, on findbet.com, uh, you can find me talking about the strategy of uh, identifying players that are going to have high volume when considering players to draft and pick up in fantasy football um, snap count for running backs is one of the most important indicators of how they're going to be used by their teams and how important they are to their offensive game plans. So let's stick with snap counts and look at a couple others from week one that are, I guess, interesting or just something to keep an eye on. Um, some of them are flat out surprising, um, but one of the more interesting ones uh, heading into week one was going to be the Tampa Bay backfield. And it was a pretty clear disparity uh, in carries and as well as, as uh, snaps where Ronald Jones got 47% of snap count, LaShawn McCoy at 36%, and the newly acquired free agent Leonard Fournette at only 13%. So Brad, do you think that Fournette's usage is going to increase with time here or does Ronald Jones get a chance to run away with this job? Well, I think Jones is going to have the chance to solidify himself as the top guy to start here. He certainly did by looking at the snap count. Uh, the big thing that I was surprised about, and obviously Fournette didn't get much usage, but I think you can chalk that up more of to not being familiar with the offensive scheme and, and just getting into Tampa Bay a week, week and a half before the first game, um, more than it is what his trend is going to be for the rest of the year. But what I was most surprised about is LaShawn McCoy getting 36%. I you know, I was surprised that Keyshawn Vaughn isn't more a part of their plan um, when they drafted him uh, this past year. I thought he was going to be a big part of what they were going to do this year. Um, but McCoy, and obviously them signing Fournette has kind of put him on the backboard. But McCoy, you know, getting 36% of the snaps behind uh, Tom Brady, is it was surprising to me. Um, I don't know if that's going to continue to be a trend, but – I think it's pretty clear off the bat that Bruce Arians is going to give Ronald Jones all the chance that he can get to run away with the job. And if he doesn't continue to succeed or, or produce like he expects, I think it's going to be Fournette then who gets the chance to slide in and, and be that guy to kind of carry the load for Tom Brady and the, and the Buccaneers. Man, I have to tell you, let's move away from fantasy just for a second. Let's put a pin in this conversation. But while we're talking about Tampa Bay, to me, I was extremely disappointed. I understand that it's a lot of new players coming in and it's, um, you know, Tom Brady's coming in, the GOAT at quarterback, and there's all these expectations. But even with the, the shortened COVID offseason and training camps, I was just extremely disappointed by the way that they looked on pretty much all aspects of the game. The, the Saints dominated them for 60 minutes, and I don't think that there was ever a moment in the game where the, it fell out of hand for the Saints. 
I think, too, if you look around the NFL from the entire year, or entire first week, I should say, uh, the the offenses, for the most part, there really wasn't a lot of rust on a lot of them. There were some high-scoring games. You look at the Packers and the Vikings. So when you come into this game in the afternoon slot, I thought for sure this was going to be a shootout of 35 to 38 type, you know, score per each team. And um, But it really wasn't. And I, I was surprised at how – for lack of a better term, how much Tom Brady has deteriorated. Uh, and it never – it was it was pretty much summed up in one play where he tried to throw an out. I think it was to Chris Godwin, a sideline out pass, and he just could not get the velocity there. And um, Janoris Jenkins, basically all he had to do was take a step in front of it, and then he was an easy pick six to the house. And, you know, Tom Brady was brought there to take care of the football – Jameis Winston had 30 interceptions last year and they let him go and brought in Tom Brady because he was going to help them protect and, and, you know, be a little bit more careful and, and be a better decision maker. And, you know, Jameis Winston could have easily done what Tom Brady did um, on Sunday with the Bucks. So, yeah, I think there's a little going to be a little bit of time. I also think that the Saints are going to be very good this year. I mean, the Saints are going to be in the NFC Championship and possibly the Super Bowl, um, especially with the way the 49ers looked there to start the year. So, um, the NFC, I think, is more wide open than the AFC. So I think the Saints are – when we look back on this game down the road, I think it probably is going to be more of an anomaly for Tampa Bay than it was the, uh, the you know, the standard for what they're going to put forward this year. Yeah, I agree. Um, I just kind of wanted to vent about it because I was so excited about that game, and it was really one of the few disappointments. <laughs> Speaking of disappointments, Brad um, – Another backfield that we have a split in carries nearly identical is the Cleveland Browns. And while they were absolutely trounced by the Baltimore Ravens and Lamar Jackson in, in week one, um, their running backs played well, both of them, um, in, in very limited touches. Uh, but Kareem Hunt actually outsnapped Nick Chubb by 1%, 49 to 48%. Uh, but this is something that had trended even toward the end of last season in 2019, where you started to see more of a timeshare uh, under Freddie Kitchens. And it has extended into the 2020 season under Kevin Stefanski. Um, it's difficult to really go away from the strategy, considering both of them are extremely productive when they're getting touches. Um, but considering Nick Chubb was just a few yards away from the rushing title and taking it away from Derrick Henry last year. Uh, how do you see this playing out throughout the season? Well, I guess as a Nick Chubb owner in one of my leagues, I'm a little uh, worried about how it's going to play out. Um, I thought, you know, with Kevin Stefanski coming over from Minnesota and how much they used one back in Dalvin Cook there for basically made him a star in that offense. I thought that Nick Chubb was going to get that same treatment. Now, obviously I don't think they ever had a backup in in uh Minnesota like they had with Kareem Hunt here in Cleveland um, but I was surprised and I was surprised too especially how well they were running the ball and how quick they were to abandon it with Baker Mayfield struggling I mean the Baltimore defense isn't any slouch against the run and both of the both Hunt and Chubb averaged over six yards a carry last week and um, you know that game was close going into the second quarter near the end of the second quarter um, and it seemed like Stefanski tried to rely on Baker Mayfield more to get them back into the game than they did on riding uh, Chubb and, and Hunt all the way to, you know, a victory. So, uh, you know, Hunt is – I didn't – you know, I wasn't buying as much of, of Hunt going into the year, but after looking at just one game, you know, that might have been a little bit of a, 
you know, miscalculation on my part. It looks like it's going to be a 50-50 split. It seems like Hunt is going to take a lot more of the passing work too. Um, so, you know, if the Browns are going to be down a lot or be in a shootout where they have to pass a lot because their defense is depleted early on here, it's going to be, you know, it doesn't spell a very good start for Chubb just because of that. No, and as a Browns fan, I have to say I enjoy it, just knowing that we have two capable options at running back as a, a fantasy owner that luckily doesn't have stock in, in either of them. Um, it's frustrating, to say the least. I do agree. Um, taking a look at a couple other backfields that uh, had some snap counts to note. Um, Seattle, uh, Chris Carson carried 45% of snaps to Carlos Hyde's 34%. Uh, Travis Homer also pitched in with 21% of the snaps during week one's game against Atlanta. Now, Hyde got more carries, but Carson shined as a pass catcher and was extremely productive with his touches, getting two receiving touchdowns early in the, in the game. Um, now, I think Carson eases into more touches um, in regards to carries as his body gets back to 100%. Um, I am maybe in the minority in thinking that Carlos, the Carlos Hyde signing was more insurance for Rashad Penny um, and the team being concerned that he wasn't going to be able to make it back for this season uh, than eating into Carson's starting role. Uh, but I'm a Chris Carson truther, uh, so it's probably going to be a good idea to get the other side of this coin from Brad. Uh, Brad, take it away with uh, your opinion on Seattle's backfield. I think the the bigger story, even out of just the the way that the rushing snaps were split, was how much Seattle passed. Yeah, uh, and they oh, really, absolutely. Russell Wilson was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody this year was kind of you know hammering Seattle for their run first philosophy and. You know, Pete Carroll in his press conferences have talked about, you know, we're going to run the ball. We want to run the ball effectively. You know, that's how we want to win and, and manage games. And, you know, you've got this, you know, MVP caliber quarterback in Russell Wilson, and you you never take the, the, the reins off of him and let him be free. And now you let that happen, and look what happened. I mean, their offense was firing on all cylinders. So, you know, if that's more of what their offense is going to be this year, then the Seattle running back situation just in general looks a little less desirable from an owning standpoint. But um, Chris Carson is going to be the guy that you're going to see on all the passing downs. It's, it's funny to see Carlos Hyde continue to get, you know, runs with different teams. He had 1,000 yards last year with Houston, and, you know, he signs in with Seattle, and he's got 35% of the snaps right off the bat. So, um I think that Chris Carson is still going to be the back that you're going to want to own and is going to, is going to be the more productive back. But if Seattle moves to a more passing offense, you know, Chris Carson may not even get as much volume from a rushing standpoint as he had gotten in past years because of that. And that may be something that will be better for his health and the, and the running back room's health in general. Yeah, I agree. And Speaking of increased passing, what a performance by Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers in week one. Um, but taking a look specifically at their backfield, uh, the breakdown of snaps for them, Aaron Jones, 54%, Jamal Williams, 40%. Surprisingly, Tyler Irvin at 18%, uh, beating out rookie A.J. Dillon at 6%. Now, does Dillon become fantasy relevant this season, Brad, or do you think that we're going to see more of the same? I mean, if, if Green Bay continues to produce on offense the way they did um, in week one, <laughs> there's really no reason to change anything. Um, but they didn't run the ball a lot, obviously, with Aaron Rodgers having that performance and four passing touchdowns. But um, but what do you make of that Packers backfield? 
Yeah, I, I don't think A.J. Dillon – if you're in Dynasty, A.J. Dillon is going to be a great running back to have just because you can stash him for a year or two when he begins to mature and take over down the road. But um, Aaron Jones is going to be the back right now. I was surprised at how much Jamal Williams got uh, back there as well. Um, that split wasn't near as much as it was in two, this year as it was in 2019. Um, you know, Tyler Irvin, he's more that scat back. He's a speed back, and, and that might have helped with stretching the field a little bit on some of those. But I was one of those guys that a lot of analysts were low on Aaron Rodgers this year and, and kind of were down on him after his kind of off year in, in Matt LaFer's first year as coach there in Green Bay. Um, he's, I think he's going to have a great year. And I think already you can see in week one, he's showing that he has the ability to take over games. He still has the arm to make all the throws that you need to do that an NFL quarterback needs to make. And, you know, he's somebody that this year could be back into the top five quarterback discussion after an off year last year. But when it comes to the backfield, it's still going to be Aaron Jones. Um, I think that at this point, it's going to be his job to lose. A.J. Dillon, I don't think, is going to be rosterable in any type of redraft league unless you have very deep benches. Um, he's somebody that probably is safe to drop to the waiver wire. Uh, pending an injury um, to Aaron Jones or Jamal Williams, uh, then he might be a little bit more relevant that way. Yeah, season-long redraft leagues, A.J. Dillon, not even worth a, a roster spot at this point, in my opinion. Um, a couple other interesting ones that will – touch on quickly because there are a couple more backfields that I think that need a little bit more further in that discussion. Uh, but an interesting one uh, in Detroit with Adrian Peterson scooping up 31% of snap count, uh, DeAndre Swift out snapped him at 44%. But carry on Johnson, the, what you would have assumed to be the incumbent starter only got 26% of the snaps and Peterson, Brad, he basically looks like a 25 year old straight out of college uh, Heisman trophy winner. He, at the age of, uh, what is he now, 75. Um, apparently he's going to be playing forever and playing at a high level. I honestly see Peterson running away with the starting job because Carrion Johnson's never been able to stay healthy for one. And DeAndre Swift, uh, unfortunately, at the end of that game, blew the opportunity to catch the go-ahead touchdown. Um, I think that will affect his confidence. Um, but also, more importantly, the coaches, uh, the coaching staff's confidence in putting in, in high-leverage situations. Um, that all swings uh, good for Adrian Peterson, um, as he's a veteran that's proven the ability to still rush for 1,000 yards in this league, even at his advanced age. Um, and that he's a smart player, a tough player, that you don't have to worry about turning the ball over. Um, Brad, why don't you talk really quickly about the Buffalo backfield and the split between Devin Singletary at 59% snap count to Zach Moss at 45%. Yeah, I think you have to look at that. And, and you kind of knew that the, it was going to be a two-back system this year in Buffalo. Um, looking at the game itself, Zach Moss got a lot of the work around the goal line, which a lot of analysts had kind of predicted after they drafted him in April. Um, Devin Singletary looked really good as a runner in general. Um, the Jets' defensive line is is above average. They have some good players there, and Leonard Williams and uh, Quinn and Williams as well, uh, coming out of Alabama. Um, but really, what we're looking at with Buffalo is how much Josh Allen ran the ball for the Bills last week, and he had 14 carries himself, and he had the only rushing touchdown on the team. Both Singletary and Zach Moss each had nine carries. Singletary rushed for 30 yards with. Zach Moss only rushing for 11. But again, Zach Moss got three rushing uh, attempts inside the five-yard line but couldn't convert. Uh, Moss did uh, catch a touchdown pass from Josh Allen in the red zone. 
um, which helped his day, obviously. But he's going to – they're both going to be um, active in the passing game. Um, Singletary is probably not going to be in on any type of, of formations around the 5- to 10-yard line in the red zone. Um, he's going to score most of his touchdowns either in the passing game or from 20 yards out on longer runs. Uh, but the big thing for me was how much Josh Allen continued to run the ball. He had two fumbles this week. He can't do that, but they're going to use him. He had 312 par- yards passing, two touchdowns, and he had another 57 yards on the ground with a rushing touchdown. So um, they like his uh, ability to run with the football, and they felt that the Jets couldn't do it. And if you look at the Dolphins this week, they couldn't stop Cam Newton last week for the Patriots. He had 75 yards on the ground and two rushing touchdowns. So I look for Josh Allen, again, to be have – some more designed QB runs this week against the Dolphins defense that had a lot of trouble covering it last week against New England. Yeah, I mean, Josh Allen has to be looking at the film from week one um, with the Dolphins against uh, a Cam, like you said, and he's got to be considering getting a Ezekiel Elliott feed me tattoo on his stomach before week two because he is for sure going to be going out there looking to run that ball down their throats. He's just a big guy, same thing as Cam Newton. Um, he's just a big body running at you with a full head of steam. And it's basically a middle linebacker coming at you with athleticism to boot. Um, he does have to cut down on those fumbles, but I could really see Josh Allen finishing the season within the top five QBs for fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, with, with how much he's continuing to rush, I mean, if he can add eight or nine rushing touchdowns like he did last year, there's his passing has greatly improved this year again. Um, so if he consistently is putting up 250 to 300 yard passing per game and adding those rushing stats, he definitely has the ability to be a top QB. Another running back field, uh, backfield I wanted to touch on real quick is, uh, the Ravens, uh, you know, you and I had talked off of the podcast just in general about how, you know, Mark Ingram is going to be the guy this year for the Ravens and JK Dobbins is going to have to work his way into a role. It's probably going to take a little bit or he's going to be the heir for 2021 and on. And Dobbins this week actually had more carries or had more of a share of the backfield than Ingram. He had 39% of the snaps to Ingram's 36. Now Ingram got more rushes, but Dobbins also got two goal line rushes too. So he scored two touchdowns this week from uh, from goal line uh, touches where Ingram didn't have any. Now, will that continue all year? I don't know if that's just the way that it worked out this week. But Dobbins, I think, is going to have a bigger role right out of the gate and, and really possibly be fantasy relevant in the flex or as a running back three to start the year, then maybe have it be sooner than probably what you and I had thought. Oh, absolutely. Um, I unfortunately watched that game in its entirety. <laughs> and I have to say, just watching Baltimore's offense work, I mean, there, there were some impressive offenses out there. Seattle, we had touched on. New Orleans, um, you know, there was a few. But to watch Baltimore work, they're just so efficient and Lamar is in such command of that offense. And they went, I think 20 for 25, he had three touchdowns. He really didn't have to use his legs too much um, and, and rush the ball himself. So he wasn't putting himself out there uh, being liable to, to, for big hits. Um, that's a scary team. And I do agree with you. I think that, that at this point, JK Dobbins is already playable in your flex. If you have them just based on the fact that that team is going to score a lot and it doesn't matter who they're playing, what defense they're playing. They're going to put points on the board consistently, and um, and they're going to do it every week. So I do agree that J.K. Dobbins uh, definitely is somebody, if he's on your roster, everybody, just put him in your flex, set it and forget it. He's going to be fine. 
uh, throughout this entire season. Um, another backfield I wanted to touch on real quick, just because any chance that I can get to uh, boast about my my successes is San Francisco, and my my main man Raheem Mostert got a whopping sixty percent of uh, snap share in San Francisco in week one. And an interesting stat that I found is he also reached the fastest speed of any player in week one on his touchdown reception, uh, reaching 22.73 miles per hour. Um, Brad, how fast can you run? I can, you know, I think I could probably put up a solid 10 to 12, maybe, you know, on a good day. I'm not sure, you know, Um, but 22 is just insane. I think I had seen a stat where it was the fastest recorded, uh, run in the NFL since like 2016 or something like that, I want to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of coming into the year, a lot of people, including myself, which it's funny how much I uh, criticize isn't the right word, but kind of gave you some flack about how much love you had for Mostert. You know, Shanahan <laughs> is known for having, you know, using whatever running back he wants whenever he feels like it. And a lot of people weren't high on, on Mostert's chances just because you've got Tevin Coleman and Jarek McKinnon. Um, pretty much, you know, they could bring a guy out off the street in, in San Francisco and he'd probably do well in that offense. But um, he, 60% of the snaps in the backfield, he didn't disappoint. He had 130 yards of from scrimmage with a touchdown. Um, just, you know, he looked very good. And, and that's some, and, and because of that, I've got two shares of him in redraft and both my redraft league, he's a starter for me. So um, I can't, I guess, give you too much flack anymore because of uh, how much I have invested in him in this year as well. So, um, but yeah, it looks like he, it's going to be his backfield. McKinnon and Coleman will be in for some change of pace and to give him a break um, and keep him fresh. But uh, most start looks like he's going to be a top 10 running back this year for sure. Well, now that we've said all that next week, it'll probably be Tevin Coleman getting 75% of the snaps and everything will fall apart. But uh, I figured I'd celebrate that victory while I was able to um, over this one week and just kind of, you know, joke with you about it a little bit. Um, But the last, (laughs) uh, the last last backfield I want to touch on um, is going to be pretty interesting. It was already kind of a mess and nobody really knew what was going to happen heading into the season for the Rams backfield. Um, with the departure of Todd Gurley. Um, and surprisingly, you know, all preseason, it was about Cam Akers or Daryl Henderson, whose backfield it was to lose. And in week one, we saw Sean McVay put Malcolm Brown out there for 60% of the snaps. Um, and he was very productive. Um, I know that you've been paying probably closer attention to that backfield than I had. Um, so what's your take on that backfield moving forward? Well, I think the big thing with that is I think that uh, Brown is going to be, you know, a big part of what they're going to try to do. Um, the big thing with that is, is Gurley isn't there anymore. So we're going to see, I think, a little bit. I think this is going to be more of what we expected from the 49ers, but it's going to be with the Rams. With Brown got quite a bit of work last week. Um, I think from that standpoint, he's going to be the top waiver pickup this week. But it could be Cam Akers next week. I don't think we're ever going to see Daryl Henderson get a fair shake at a running back job there in, in, uh, in Los Angeles, just with the way that he has run and uh, with his hamstring issues. And apparently just Sean McVay doesn't trust him. I think he had what he had 7% of the carries or 7% of the snaps last week back there. And I think he only had one or two carries. So um, I think it's going to be more between Brown and acres this year. Um, but acres just didn't look like he was ready yet. And Brown looked like he was a better runner right now in, in McVay's offense. 
not only better runner, but if you look at the game tape, it just seems like Brown is more comfortable in pass protection. And, and that's a big thing for coaches, especially coaches like McVay that like to work off play action and make sure that they have that blocker uh, in the backfield to protect their quarterback. Um, so just for that reason, I think that Brown is going to get the, the majority of the volume in that backfield. And I think if he's available in your league, which uh, I think last I checked, he was available in about 80% of Yahoo leagues. Um, so I'm sure that's changed by now, but go pick him up. Um, I think he's going to be one of the few running backs you're going to be able to pick up on the waiver wires this season that's going to make a, a long-term difference. Um, and Cam Akers is, is probably going to be their running back uh, next year and into the future. Uh, but for at least this season, I, I think that Malcolm Brown's going to be the guy. Uh, they looked extremely good, and, and they kind of look like the Rams from two years ago um, against Dallas on Sunday night, and, uh, and Malcolm Brown was a big part of that. But one thing to keep note is that last week in, or last year in 2019 and week one, Malcolm Brown had 11 carries for 53 yards, two touchdowns, and then the rest of the season never exceeded 11 carries 40 yards or one touchdown in any single game the rest of the season. So while I do think it's different, um, just something to keep in mind. Um, and uh, moving on from the backfield, really quickly, let's touch on a couple of duds from week one from fantasy football that uh, we think may have the opportunity to bounce back in week two. Now, Michael Thomas, we already talked about. Um, he was on this list, but he has since been ruled out. Um, so we'll skip over him really quick. Um, Mark Ingram, somebody that we had touched on, he actually had 10 carries for 29 yards, um, and the Ravens have Houston in week two. Uh, bounce back for Mark Ingram. You know, it's tough. I think that he's definitely early on in the year, he's going to get the lion's share of the carries. Um, so, you know, just looking at it from a pure statistics standpoint, he's got a shot to bounce back. Um, Houston doesn't have a bad defensive line or a bad run defense. Um, you know, even with uh, Edwards Hilaire kind of taking them to town there last week, they still have a pretty formidable defensive line. Um, but I just don't know how much Ingram has left in the tank. And maybe this is where we're starting to see him kind of fall off the cliff um, and where Dobbins kind of is going to get more of a role just because of that. Um, but at least early on in the year, Ingram is going to get most of the touches barring any type of injury. Um, another bounce back that we were looking at this week is Tom Brady. Is, is Tom Brady washed up, Matt, or is he somebody that is going to bounce back with this week against Carolina? Well, you know that I believe Tom Brady is probably the greatest athlete in the history of sports, um, accomplishing what he had uh, during the free agency era of football. Um, but I have to agree with what you said earlier in the show, Brad. Uh, Brady looked kind of like Peyton Manning did that last year uh, in the league where you knew he didn't have it anymore and you kind of rooted for him, even if you rooted against him his whole career you kind of root for him to get back there and you're just not able to Tom Brady almost had that look um, against new Orleans. Now the, the good news for Tom Brady and the bucks is that they have Carolina this week um, who, while they put up a lot of points also let up a lot of points um, to Las Vegas last week. And I do suspect that the Tampa Bay offense is going to be looking pretty good, even though uh, their receiver, the receivers are a couple of them are questionable. Um, so I do think that, that Tom Brady is going to have a bounce back game this week against uh, Carolina, but 
my recommendation to your fantasy players out there is hope that Tom Brady does have that breakout game. Hope that it's huge. And then hope that somebody in, in your league is looking for a quarterback that would um, trade for Tom Brady because moving forward, I just see way too many quarterbacks um, that are ascending, including Danny Dimes with the Giants and um, uh, Gardner Minshew with Jacksonville. Um, those are both guys that I would ra rather have over Tom Brady. Um, and then you're still talking about your elite guys like Mahomes and Watson, uh, Lamar Jackson, uh, Matt Ryan, Russell Wilson. So there's just too many guys from a fantasy perspective that I'd rather have over Tom Brady. So if uh, you're relying on him to be your starting quarterback all year, you might be disappointed. Um, if you can move on from him, that would be my, re my recommendation. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm in the same boat with that. I think that I wasn't too high on him this year just because of some of the things that we started to see last year. Um, and now that he's got talent around him, he doesn't have any excuse. You know, with, that was a big excuse last year is he didn't have much talent around him from a skill position standpoint. And you can't really ask for a better skill position room than he has there in Tampa Bay. No, I can't make any more excuses. The, there's enough talent there to go around. And um, unfortunately, it might be Tom Brady's time. But as a Bills fan, Brad, it's got to be uh, just tickling you pink. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, nice <laughs> it's nice to see him out of the division. I'll say that. Uh, another kind of a bust from last or from week one was Saquon Barkley um, in the Monday night slate. They take on Chicago this week. Uh, I have absolutely 0% worry about Saquon. I don't really see too much need to talk about it. Do you have any takes on Saquon rebounding this week? I think Saquon will 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 ascend back to the mean when it comes to that. I think that was more of an anomaly than what's going to be his norm for the rest of the year. But one thing to note is the Giants' offensive line is a lot worse looking than I thought it would be. Yes, um, I agree. Daniel Jones was running for his life. And now give the Steelers credit. They have an excellent defense. They have an excellent, excellent defensive line. But Jones had no time to uh, make any type of decision or make any type of good throw. Um, and he still had a, a relatively good night from a statistic statistic standpoint. So um, if that offensive line continues to struggle, we may see Saquon's fantasy stats struggle as well. You know, he's not going to be somebody that uh, he needs better blocking up front to get that first guy to miss. And um, that's the big part of what his game is as well. So. Yeah. Don't sell Saquon by any means yet, but that is a good point. Um, keep an eye on that offensive line situation. I can tell you from watching the Browns, um, Baker Mayfield, while he was inaccurate all game, he was also running for his life most of the game. Um, you know, that's kind of a, a newer offensive line put together there in Cleveland with uh, Jedrick Wills, um, at the rookie at left tackle. So, um, you know, with the weird off season, uh, no preseason games, you know, teams, I'm giving them a little bit more leash than I typically would. Um, but considering uh, the Saquon Barkley is expected to be potentially the number one overall player in fantasy this season, uh, to start out with a game like that, you know, it's definitely going to uh, put some red flags up. So keep an eye on that. Um, one last guy I want to finish with um, in, uh, in regards to bust from week one was OBJ. Um, Beckham was pretty inefficient, um, even though he led the team in targets and he also uh, led the team in target share uh, with 28.5%. Uh, which is a pretty large number. Um, it just looked bad. Just him and, and Baker for the, the past uh, two seasons have looked out of sync. And um, even though Baker kind of forces the ball into him, 
Um, he doesn't do it very accurately. Uh, later in the game, he missed uh, Odell on a deep ball that he had separation by about five yards on the Baltimore defensive back. That would have been an easy touchdown. Um, but I still think Odell is going to bounce back this week just based on the fact that um, I think Cleveland is just a better team than Cincinnati. So I think they kind of get back on track, at least for this week momentarily. Um, and uh, I think the OBJ is a definite bounce back candidate. So even though he had only a couple of points for you fantasy owners in week one, uh, don't give up on him yet. Plug him in on Thursday. Uh, feel good about it. And uh, we'll see how it comes out after the week. Um, but sticking with target share, Brad, we have a list here of some of the highest uh, target share receivers from week one. Why don't you pick out a couple and kind of go over uh, what you think about them and if they're going to be good plays heading into week two. Hopkins is the number one. I mean, he saw a whopping 44% of targets from Kyler Murray this week. Um, he had a monster game against a very good defense, uh, even though there's the 49ers defense has lost a few cornerbacks to injury this year. Um, Hopkins looked – every bit the receiver he was in Houston. Um, and now that he have, has an offensive coordinator that's building an offense around him, um, I've been beating his drum all summer and all offseason. Uh, I was not uh, – I couldn't understand why a lot of people were discounting him as the fifth or the sixth wide receiver. Um, and the first game with Arizona showed why. I mean, he's still elite. He's still – he's going to finish. Now with Michael Thomas being out, he's going to finish probably in the top three this year if he can stay healthy. Um, another one that jumps out to me is uh, Jamison Crowder. He was really the only bright spot for the Jets this week. Um, and really, and the only reason he was a bright spot is he was able to convert a wide receiver screen for a 60-yard touchdown uh, late in the game when the Bills were kind of playing off coverage a little bit more once the game was out of reach. Um, Will Fuller was a nice, another nice uh, wide receiver this week on the Thursday night game against Kansas City. He had over 100 yards. 32% of, of Deshaun Watson's passes were headed his way. Um, if he can stay healthy in that offense, he's going to be a very good wide receiver too. And it just – health is going to be the big issue with him. Um, with you, Matt, are there any others that jumped out at you this week that you thought were uh, something to keep an eye on moving forward? Uh, I thought it was interesting that Nikhil Harry got 31.6% of the targets uh, from Cam Newton in New England. Um, he was a rookie that kind of underperformed last year and was – uh, almost as unimpressive as J.J. Arcega-Whiteside. Um, but if he continues to get that target share, you would think that he, he is a first-round pedigree type of a player coming out of college. And he's somebody that you would expect to um, progress at some point this season. So it's something to keep an eye on. I wouldn't say I was extremely um, impressed with what he did with the ball, but uh, a decent performance from him considering where he was coming from last season. Uh, also, Mike Williams um, got 31% of the targets uh, from Tyrod Taylor um, with the Chargers. And um, I just I, I have to give props to Will Fuller for his performance in week one. Uh, I've always been someone that kind of ragged on him. I, you know, he's someone that can't stay healthy and somebody that just never really impressed me. But considering the opponent that they had in week one, um, and he's kind of being forced to step into that DeAndre Hopkins role at this point, which is pretty big shoes to fill. Um, I, I was pretty impressed with what he did. Um, one last guy I want to touch on from a target share perspective was Darren Waller with the Las Vegas Raiders. Um, he tops the tight ends with 28.57% of targets from um, Derek Carr and in, in that Raiders offense from week one. Um, and that was uh, probably everything I wanted to touch on. Oh, 
one more was uh, 25% from Allen Robinson. And I just less wanted to talk about the 25% target share and more just kind of touch on really quickly. Uh, he had reports that had come out that he was requesting a trade from Chicago um, following week one um, amidst the contract negotiations, not making any progress. And um, quickly also in the same day today, uh, reports have come out that they had cleared the air. Um, but just something to keep an eye on. If players aren't happy where they're at, um, it could affect performance. And uh, Anthony Miller looked good towards the end of uh, the game against Detroit, um, catching the go-ahead touchdown to eventually win the game. Um, but just keep an eye on that situation because Allen Robinson, if he's unhappy, he might get traded before the deadline. Um, so if you have stock in Allen Robinson, just kind of keep an eye on that. Um, Brad, anything else on football you want to touch on before we move on? Yeah, I, I wouldn't worry too much about Allen Robinson, you know, with the trade request. I think that seems to be the norm now in the NFL courting extension process. You know, you the two sides meet and they're completely off in numbers and then they get a little bit closer and then they break talks off and then the player asks for a trade and it's then everybody comes back to the table and everybody holds hands and sings kumbaya and they get a deal done. So you saw that with Alvin Kamara. You've seen it with Dalvin Cook a lot of these big deals that have been done even just in the last year here. So um, I think Allen Robinson will be with the bears. And I think it's just, a, this is just part of the process of, of getting that extension in place. That is true. But you know me, Brad, I like to spread conspiracy theories. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay. So just so our audience doesn't think that the only thing we talk about is football, there are other sports going on and some important ones at that. Um, the NBA playoffs have been fantastic and I've been watching uh, pretty much any game and, and any second that I can get of bubble basketball since the restart. And it's been fantastic. Um, but at this point we're in the conference finals and I have a piece up that kind of is a primer and preview um, for those conference finals on findbet.com. Um, you can check it out. Uh, and also remember to follow us on Twitter at find underscore bet. Uh, also on Instagram at FindBet, just one word, um, and you'll know when we have new content coming out. Um, but talking about uh, the NBA playoffs, uh, let's start in the Western Conference. The Lakers made short work of the Rockets in the Western Conference semis, and they will now take on the Denver Nuggets, who became the first team in NBA history to overcome a 3-1 series deficit twice in a playoff season. Um, they had done it to the Jazz in the first round, and now the Clippers um, in the second. And I couldn't be happier about it. Um, I've been pretty transparent with people that know me about my feelings for the Clippers. And they've just played with an air of uh, almost entitlement, that, like they were supposed to be the champions before the season even started. So I'm not too disappointed that they got bounced by a, a very likable Denver team. Um, but the Lakers changed lineups uh, during the, the Rocket series to add Alex Caruso and Markeith Morris to go alongside LeBron James and AD to uh, go small to match the Rockets' smaller lineup and offset their strengths, um, which typically the Rockets have succeeded um, with their smaller lineups because they're faster and by driving to the hoop, they uh, are able to find shooters on the perimeter um, and, and beat teams just by outscoring them. Uh, the Lakers' defense was just suffocating them all series, and uh, they allowed Harden to work um, because they knew that no matter what they do to James Harden, he's going to get points off. Um, but they forced everybody else into bad spots. Um, Brad, what's your take on on what the Lakers' defense did to the Rockets in the semis? 
I think especially with what they did with Russell Westbrook, who they, you know, they allowed him to take open threes all series long. Uh, and he only shot 25% from three, which was, you know, something that was not um, part of his game or, or part of the norm for him. Um, Frank Vogel, he's had his team playing hard defense all season. And it, you know, it showed against the series against the Rockets. Um, it showcases ability to game plan um, for an opponent and kind of morph his team into uh, what they need to be with with uh, lineup adjustments or uh, you know adjustments on the fly if someone's something's not working on the on the starting lineup that he was quick to make adjustments during a game to get the right pieces on the court that he needed um, and they have the personnel to defend in a variety of ways you know they they'll need it going in against the nuggets I and mean, obviously the nuggets are are no uh, stranger to um, adversity with be, being the first team to, to come back from two three one series deficits um, but you got to wonder if, if, if the Nuggets have anything left in the tank, especially going into um, a series with the Lakers that, uh, who seem to be firing on all cylinders right now. Absolutely. Uh, Nikolaj Jokic and Jamal Murray had been absolutely fantastic um, in uh, games five and six. <clears throat> they, in the second half of uh, both of those games combined, they had uh, 82 points compared to the Clippers as a team having 84 uh, over those two second halves those closeout games and uh, we just saw the Clippers fall apart uh, while we saw Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic uh, thrive. Uh, Murray dropping 40 points in game seven um, last night and Jokic has proved to be a, a problem for teams um, all year uh, really since he's come into the league um, just based on his abilities and his size uh, and his, his playmaking ability and his court vision um, really separates him from a lot of, uh, of the big men in the league um, but to me, Brad, the difference in this series is that the Lakers are, A, going to be rested, um, having knocked out the Houston um, so quickly 4-1. Um, but also, they have Anthony Davis, they have JaVale McGee, and they have Dwight Howard to throw at Jokic all game uh, to continue to wear him down. Um, and between John Rondo, Alex Caruso, and KCP, uh, they have perimeter defenders to match up on Murray. So it's really going to be up to those role players on Denver, including Monte Morris, Will Barton, uh, et cetera, um, Michael Porter, to get those points if the Nuggets have a shot to win. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be a great series. I think it's going to be uh, – I think it favors the Lakers for sure. Um, but, you know, the Nuggets are defying logic right now. And, and, you know, who knows, there could be a shock for sure. But if we move over to the Eastern Conference, and we saw that the Miami Heat defeat the Celtics in game one of the Eastern Conference Finals, and is it – time that we stop doubting the heat's ability yeah i think it is brad and you know i'm i'm embarrassed to say in my conference finals preview i did pick the celtics to win in six um but i really could i wouldn't be happier to be wrong um <laughs> than i would be to be wrong about the the heat losing this series because i love jimmy butler i love eric spolstra i love this heat team they're a gritty team. Uh, they're kind of reminiscent of the type of team that you would see uh, running up against the Larry Bird Celtics or Magic Johnson's Lakers in the 80s, uh, where they want to hit you in the mouth from the start of the game, and they want to keep hitting you in the mouth for 48 minutes. Um, and what we saw in game one was Jimmy Butler being a leader. Um, Tyler Hero con continuing to be a rookie that's not afraid to step into uh, the spotlight and make big plays. He's been taking and making big threes all year for them, and he's developing into one of the best three-point shooters in the league already. Um, the the block that, that Bam Adebayo had on Jason Tatum to seal the game uh, last night 
might have been the greatest defensive play that I've ever seen in my life. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, Brad, but if you haven't seen it, you gotta you gotta look it up. Uh, have you caught that that black? I yet? think you know with and it was it was amazing. I would probably have to agree with you. It's it's right up there for me as being a Cavs fan with the LeBron block on Iguodala in Game Seven of the 2016 uh, NBA Finals. So um, it's it was just that game in general. Game one was just back and forth, and it was amazing on both sides, but. Uh, yeah, that block is going to go down in history as probably one of the greatest blocks in playoff history. Yeah, I don't have any tattoos, but uh, there's a, a shot of that that block um, that I might have to get tattooed on my chest. It was that <laughs> impressive to me. Um, but yeah, the Celtics, they just weren't ready for 48 minutes with Jimmy and the Heat. And um, even though I took them to win, you know, I, I'm going to stick by my pick. Uh but like I said before, I'm not going to be too upset if the Heat advance. Um, I've really enjoyed watching them. Um, and Eric Spolster has done a fantastic job with that team. Uh, he deserves a raise after the job that he's done this year. Um, and he continues to be one of the best coaches in, in the National Basketball Association. Um, but let's really quickly move on to baseball because baseball is getting to the point in the season. We're wrapping up. Uh, the playoff picture is starting to form. Um, so let's dive into some uh, MLB um, as we're getting closer to teams clinching uh, playoff spots. Um, so, Brad, take over uh, and start talking about some MLB for me. So, if we start, you know, the MLB just came out um, yesterday with the playoff structure. Um, they are going to have the wild card round games. They're going to be hosted by the higher seed team at their home stadium. Um, there'll be five game series there, uh, or three game series there, sorry. And then after that, the four, si four sites are going to be used for each ALDS game. Um, San Diego uh, and the Dodgers Stadium are going to be used for uh, the AL teams um, for each, uh, each ALDS matchup there. And then Arlington, where the Rangers play, um, and Houston are going to host the NL team. So uh, you'll get four games in four different venues there in their own kind of mini bubbles. Um, and then the ALCS is going to be played in San Diego this year, while the NLDS is going to be played at, at uh, in Arlington at the Rangers Stadium. And then finally, the World Series is going to be played in Texas. So the MLB is moving towards the the playoff bubble, kind of like the NBA and the NHL have done, um, with great success, I should say as well. Um, you know, at the beginning of the MLB season, it looked like we were going to lose that season with some of the out, uh, COVID outbreaks that were had um, on the Marlins, on the Cardinals. Um, but the teams have really kind of straightened things out, straightened their protocols out, and it looks like the bubble playoff system has worked really well for the NBA and the NHL, and it's going to work well for the MLB as well. Yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, great work by both those leagues, and they really uh, provided the, the model for um, uh, other leagues to follow. So so good point on that. Now, an, an interesting part about the setup, um, the way that the playoffs will work this year for the MLB, is that there's going to be no days off during series, meaning teams will play back-to-back -back, um, until the series is finished. With there being minimal days off between series as teams advance, um, it'll be interesting to see what they do with their rotations. Do you think that you're going to see teams stick with a five-man rotation with this format, or do you think that we're going to see three, four-man rotations that we typically see in the playoffs under normal circumstances, but with teams being so concerned about their pitchers' arms and uh, saving the, their arms and, and working on pitch counts? Um, how do you see this playing out, Brad? Yeah, I think you're going to see more five-man rotations, especially through the uh, the wild card games and into the ALDS. Now, in the ALCS, you might see a three-man rotation, but or a four-man. 
the three man is going to be tough because there's like you just said, there's no off days during the series. They're you're going to be playing. If you have a seven game series, it's going to go seven days within that series. So, um, you know, your ace isn't going to be able to pitch three times like it would be if it went to game seven in an ALCS before you're really two is going to be stretching it for them. Um, if you can make it to game five uh, or game six to get them uh, your ace, a second start. So um, I think you'll see guys pitching on four days rest, uh, three days rest maybe, but nothing more than nothing less than that when it comes to that. And, and when we're even talking about this expanded playoff structure, you know, the commissioner, Rob Manfred, he came out and uh, said that the playoff structure that is going to happen here in 2020 with the COVID shortened season is actually going to stretch into 2021 and beyond. A lot of teams have been very receptive to having more teams in the playoffs. And obviously that means more, TV revenue and more shares of revenue coming into those teams. And also it means more teams that get a chance to, to say that they were in the playoffs. So well, if you want to say that, I don't know if it, how, do you feel like this is going to dilute the playoff system? Uh, is it going to allow teams that are mediocre that uh, haven't put together a good product on the field for a year and then maybe get hot for a month or two, get into the playoffs? Um, or is it something that where, you know, baseball, the good teams are going to rise to the top no matter who they play. Well, you know, one thing is I like the quick and pace of moving through the playoffs at this point. Um, I don't know if that'll just be for the season or if that will be a part of what they're going to implement um, into the future. But I do like the quick and pace of moving through just because baseball doesn't need the rest time that most other sports do uh, in between games, you know, for the recovery aspect of it. Um, you know, it's definitely wear and tear on the body just due to the length of the season. Um, but because of that length of the season, 162 games is just a long time for only five teams in each league to advance to the postseason. Eight's a better number. Um, I honestly probably wouldn't be opposed to it being even uh, a couple more. Um, but moving on to the playoff picture, uh, in the AL, the White Sox, the Rays, Athletics, and Twins um, all have a pretty comfortable grip on a playoff spot. While the Yankees, Blue Jays, Astros, and Indians round out the current top eight, um, the Yankees are getting Aaron Judge back now, and they're starting to play a little bit better of late, but they've been sliding, and, and they've been a disappointment this year. Um, they need to hit a groove in order to make that title run that many expected from them before the season started. Um, Brad, any takes on any of those teams? I feel like those are probably the teams getting in. Um, you have any outsiders that you think have a shot to, to get inside that top eight? No, I think that that's pretty close. I think if any team is going to drop from that, it's probably going to be the Indians. Uh, they've lost seven straight here going into it. And when you're playing a 50, 60 game season, a seven game losing streak is almost, uh, you know, 10%, 8% of your season. Uh, so that is something that uh, is definitely, basically it can't happen. I think if you're looking at the rest of the teams in the AL, um, another team that could possibly sneak in, um, is the Mariners are only three games behind four games behind the Indians right now. Um, and even the Tigers as well, they're five games behind the Indian four and a half, sorry, behind the Indians. Um, so, you know, if that trend continues, that's not something that's going to, to bode well, but I think those eight teams have the best shot right now, but if anyone is going to drop out, it's going to be Cleveland. And if we look over, yeah. And if we look over, I mean, we looking at the NL, you've got the Dodgers, Cubs, Braves and Padres, they're the current top four right now if the playoffs started today. Um, and then you've got the Marlins, the Phillies, the Cardinals, and the Giants that are round out the eight playoff teams there in the NL field. Are there any others that kind of jump out to you in the NL that possibly could sneak in there at the last second? 
You know, I really don't. I think that those teams are pretty solid, and they've been pretty consistent um, in regards to their position throughout the season. So I think that that's probably who we're going to see. Um, yeah, I, I don't really have anything else to add there. Those are the teams that I like. Um, those are the teams that I want to see in it. And um, I'm excited for some postseason baseball because I'll be honest, I love baseball, Brad, but it doesn't really get exciting for me until the postseason. Yeah, and the postseason is going to be fun this year. I think the biggest thing, you know, the postseason starts here for the AL on September 29th and the NL games start on the 30th. So we've got about just a little under two weeks left of the regular season. I think if anybody's going to sneak in in the NLL and in the NL, it's going to be the Reds or possibly the Brewers. They're only a couple games behind the Cardinals right now. Um, and even the Rockies could sneak into, you know, they're three games back from the, from the Cardinals. Um, so, you know, there's still some ambiguity at the bottom of the NL uh, bracket compared to where we are in the AL. Um, but it's, like you said, there's really not much that beats MLB postseason. And the nice thing about, you know, you never want to say that this 2020 has been nice from a sports perspective, but it's, we're going to get baseball in October and which is, you know, you get that Christmas in the air and, um, it's a chilly night, but you've got baseball on the TV, uh, MLB postseason, which is going to bring a little bit more normalcy to everything. So. Oh, it's the best time of the year, Brad. You get some chilly baseball. You got some football on the weekend. And, but the basketball season is going to be starting a little bit later. But, man, it's my favorite time of year. It's, you know, snowy and, and nasty up here where we are. So uh, when the winter hits, you know, we love to have our sports to watch. just gives us something to do. Um, well, I have to say, Brad, that went quick. But we're at the yeah, end of the episode, and I don't want to—I don't want to go long again like we did uh, in, in the first episode. Um, but to our listeners, thank you for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. We hope that these are informational and helpful for you guys, and, and entertaining as well. Um, but for this week's NFL fantasy and betting coverage, along with who's hot and who's not in fantasy baseball, check out FindBet.com and follow us on social media. On Twitter, it's find underscore bet. And on uh, Instagram, it's find bet, all just one word. Um, that'll do it for this week's episode of The Catch. Thanks for listening. And until next time, God bless Gardner Minshew.